Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, my name is Betty Lynn Fisher. I'm the consumer columnist and medical reporter with the Akron Beacon Journal. Today, um, we are doing a healthy actions um, column and uh, question and answer podcast and video on um, gambling addiction. On January 1st of the new year, sports gambling will be legal online and in brick and mortar locations. Some of my Beacon Journal colleagues are working on some stories about the new law and as a companion piece, this month's healthy actions topic, which we which I look at a different medical issue with a local expert each month, is about about gambling addictions. Today, our expert is Angela Sowers, Vice President of Outpatient Clinical Services at Akron-based Portage Path Behavioral Health. She's a licensed professional clinical counselor and a state-licensed independent chemical dependency counselor. She's also taught a graduate-level addictions course at Walsh University. And just to say a little bit about Portage Path, Portage Path is um, behavioral health has four locations in Summit County and has helped guide people to recovery from mental illness and related substance abuse disorders, regardless of their ability to pay. The organization also operates the 24-hour psychiatric emergency services and answers the 988 suicide and crisis lifeline for the Summit and Lake Counties, and is a backup for several other counties, as well as operating its own hotline. Angela, thank you so much for joining me today um, on this important topic. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Betty. It's nice to be here. So let's just jump in. Um, can you kind of let's start by talking about how can you tell the difference between someone who is being an enthusiast versus someone whose issues may become an addiction? Yeah. So um, an enthusiast is going to be someone who can sort of keep this contained to that type of entertainment or a hobby. Um, you know, they'll have the intention, the controls, the limits. Um, there are plenty of people who are able to sort of place a bet on a game and, you know, have that added thrill and excitement of the possibility of earning money or the pride of, you know, that predicted outcome. Um, but, you know, that can be incredibly intoxicating. And for some, you know, that's where it ends is the fun. Um, the big difference is that they will they will keep that level of insight, the judgment, the rational thinking, all of that remains like fully intact when they're making decisions about when, where, how much money they're going to wager um, while kind of keeping a, a running tab of like what their odds are, all of that. So that would be your enthusiast. Um, but, you know, the brain functions in response to these sort of heightened emotions that are caused by these sort of behaviors. You know, there's this sort of algorithm um, in addiction process where you have that I'm going to predict it and then the gain, the loss, the excitement, the disappointment. And, you know, that's really what causes this behavior to be one that's going to be high risk for that addictive process to begin. And so anything really that we introduce into our awareness that induces that heightened experience um, where it's really a release of these euphoric neuro neurotransmitters and chemicals 
um, that's going to become a risk for addiction. So any repeated pleasurable experiences, um, you know, th- some can be fairly benign, um, but for gambling, the risk really um, sort of becomes defined by the negative financial impact um, and then therefore sort of related depression and anxiety too that can um, affect an individual and their family. Right. And are the signs for a potential addiction similar for various potential issues? And what are those signs? So the signs of addiction can be generalized in many ways because, um, you know, there are some that apply to all addictions across the board. The ones that really are specific to gambling um, addiction, it actually is a disorder um, in our mental health disorders manual. Um, And it's diagnosed by clinicians and they're assessing an individual who might be experiencing some symptoms, um, but there's a list of sort of criteria that they would meet, just like any other mental health disorder. Um, And I want to make the point, too, it's important to be assessed by someone who is a clinical professional because there are some impulse uh, or manic episodes or things like that that can sort of uh, be tied in there. And it's good to have someone who's very familiar with differential diagnosis to truly understand what's going on. Um, but just some of the criteria it's really, um, and they would be exhibiting these symptoms for more than a 12 month period to actually meet criteria for the diagnosis. Um, but these key indicators are the need to increase the amounts of money Um, in order to achieve that desired excitement. And that's very similar to any other addictive process is that the the amount needed to get that same level of um, mood alteration, it seems to continue to increase. Um, The restlessness or irritability when they're attempting to cut down or stop. Um, If the person has made repeated unsuccessful efforts to control or cut back, if they're sort of preoccupied by it, it's really taking up a lot of their time and other activities seem to decrease as this activity increases. Um, The person is feeling a lot of distress, sort of helpless, guilty, anxious, depressed, all of those really um, difficult emotions start to play a a big factor, especially after losing. um, And the person returns the next day to sort of chase the losses. Um, That's a key indicator as well. Um, A lot of lying and concealing and sort of secrecy um, to the extent and the involvement um, that kind of goes with the guilt and shame process as well. Um, And even jeopardizing significant relationships or opportunities in their life, you know, with education, career, things like that. Um, And then starting to rely on others to provide money or relieve desperate financial situations. Those are all the criteria that have been sort of agreed upon that this is what defines a problem gambling. And you mentioned 12 of 12 month period. Does it have to be in a, in a 12 month period or can this, you know, can it be diagnosed earlier than a, than a, than a year span? So typically if 
a diagnosis um, has sort of a requirement of a 12-month period, what you're looking at at that point is anyone who's struggling with problem gambling, you can just indicate this person is struggling and they might meet these criteria, but because it hasn't been a persistent issue, they don't meet criteria for a disorder at that, you know, and then once that, that you know, whatever 12-month period passes, that's really where the person is looking at, okay, Okay, these things have been going on for a you know this period of time and without recovery. Now we're looking at something that needs uh, a level of intervention because diagnosis really is there to drive the the treatment of it. Okay, okay, and maybe we can talk about it a little bit later. But I guess I'm, I guess my question there is if somebody is is showing some of these signs earlier than twelve months, should you know their loved ones still try to help them seek treatment? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's not it's not a 12 month mark, but that's the, the 12 month mark is kind of for the it's very the, unique criteria for okay. that specific thing. But it's really the most important thing to keep in mind with any kind of support is that as soon as it's causing a negative um, situation of any kind in, a, in somebody's life or they feel like I've been trying to cut down, I've been trying to get a hold of this but I, I'm not really sure there might be other tools out there that could help me to reach these goals and these limits that I've set for myself. That's really where intervention is going to be impactful at, on any level. So, Sure. And you and I were chatting beforehand that there are also kind of levels of mild, moderate, and severe. Correct. So um, there's specifiers that if they meet four to five criteria, it's considered mild, six to seven would be moderate, and then eight to nine is uh, what's considered severe. Okay. Okay. And are there differences between a serious chemical dependency and a gambling addiction? Um, yeah. So the obvious differences are that, of course, with a substance use disorder, um, the individual is struggling with a desire to use a chemical substance to alter their mood. Um, with a gambling addiction, we kind of put that in the category of a behavioral addiction. Um, and really what becomes addictive is this chemical response um, that alters the mood. So though the addiction process is similar, um, it's just the way our brains are set up. We want to repeat behaviors that make us feel good. Um, and what heightens the risk is that especially if someone's not feeling very good. And this really kind of brings a bigger jump for them. So if I'm operating on, you know, if we put it on a number scale, if I'm a pretty well-adjusted, high-functioning, I've got a lot of good things going in my life, you know, that jump of the that dopamine surge is going to take me to a pleasurable level. But if I'm really, you know, feeling low and I come into a bunch of money or I have the pride of really figuring it out and I get that illusion of control about gambling, that that significant jump there um, is what increases risk as well. Um, but, you know, the problem enters when we lose sight of what kind of harm we're causing our biopsychosocial, spiritual beings. Um, and it's really identified by that false belief that we have control over that behavior um, when, in fact, we really have lost control. So, you know, an example that I use a lot of times with clients is, um, you know, if I if I enjoy shopping 
And I even, you know, there are a lot of people that even refer to it as like retail therapy, you know? And so, um, if I'm able to have a plan of what I can and can't spend, um, if I know what I need and don't need, if I'm, you know, I can have that experience. It can be, I can be an enthusiast, you know, but, um, really the addiction comes in when, if I start noticing, wow, I've have too many possessions to manage. I am experiencing some significant debt because of this. Um, if once I realize the negative impact that it's having on me, um, and I can set limits and sort of create goals around spending and debt um, repayment. That's all part of the human experience is to sort of figure out, oh, this is something that I really enjoy. I'm going to need to start setting limits on it. Um, and if I'm as successful at that, setting those limits and working toward those goals, that's great, you know, but if I am not successful at it, um, you know, that's when I can ask for support of some kind and there's no shame in asking for support. I think, um, we continue to fight against the stigma of admitting that we've sort of lost control over a situation, you know, that makes us feel weak or we're not sure if we're even supposed to ask for help for something that seems like, you know, this isn't a mental illness. This isn't, you know, but we're really in the behavioral health world trying to get that message across that as soon as something becomes too difficult for you to do on your own, asking for help and getting those you know, setting out those goals with someone who can sit down with you and work with you and give you tools that you've just, you didn't know that you didn't know. Um, that's where really we come into the picture, um, of helping as counselors. Um, and the more that we can teach adults and children, um, from the ground up that it really truly is part of the human experience. We're all going to come up against something that we have to, uh, ask for some tools to help us to get better at. And that is what we want to happen rather than someone hitting rock bottom and then being like, I have no other recourse other than to ask for help. Right. Right. And we'll get to, um, kind of the resources we have and available in our community for help in a second. Um, you know, are, are you and other, um, experts concerned that making sports betting legal will put more people at risk? Um, you know, the mental health and addiction community is always going to be concerned, uh, when something that's a high risk for addiction becomes legal, um, just the access to it increases the amount of people that are going to be affected by this, what we've already described as something that really is, um, easy to get a little bit caught up in, um, from one level to another. So it just means that with the increased number of people engaging in sports betting, um, the increase of the addiction rises as well. So again, with the real risk, um, it can be misunderstood who, you know, by those who aren't familiar with all that's involved because, you know, from the outside, it might look like, well, you know, it really ends with the person and their own personal debt. Right. Um, but the reality is that any pattern of behavior that, um, is, uh, sort of moving into that category of addiction, it's the secrecy, the major losses, the anxiety and depression that becomes associated 
And it does lead to an increased risk of those secondary mental health problems. And, you know, studies have shown that there's an associated um, increased risk of suicide with that as well. So, so yes, um, to answer that question, it's, it is an increase um, of concern and we're hoping that um, it's matched by um, prevention measures, you know, that some of the money that is coming out of this would go into, um, you know, measures for intervention and prevention. Well, so let's go into talking about what help is available. Yeah, so fortunately, there's a lot of different types of help available for those who want it. Um, one of the hardest parts about getting someone connected to help or intervention of any kind is that, um, you know, connecting someone as a concerned family or friend to the right intervention, the right support or help, um, it's, they have to be wanting it, you know, ultimately as a free thinking adult, um, addiction can be very difficult to treat if the person isn't really ready. And what we see a lot is a person, um, that's being brought by a family member or, you know, a concerned friend and they want to want to be ready, but they're really not there yet. And so, um, when we assess someone for the treatment of addiction, one of the most important factors that we look at is their stage of change is what that's, you know, sort of called in our, in our community. And if the person is still in sort of this state of contemplating the pros and the cons of calling it quits, um, the battle can be a tough one. You know, addiction by nature is something that the brain, um, doesn't, really, it's, it's not always rational. You know, the thinking along with it is not always rational. So that illusion of control, that chase of the wind, um, the compulsion, the craving to experience that surge of excitement, all of those are really, um, difficult on the road to recovery. So sometimes, um, the best intervention begins with the family and friends receiving the support on how to manage a relationship with someone who might be struggling with these symptoms of problem gambling. Um, and so just to kind of list out a few um, of these programs that are available, um, you know, treatment uh, can begin with a counseling relationship. So cognitive behavioral therapy, which is um, one of the top evidence-based practices utilized by most, most mental health clinicians. Um, we, you know, have several counselors here that work with um, folks in that capacity for in-person counseling. You can call Portage Path for an admissions assessment and get connected to a counselor who can teach these skills and tools um, for both individuals and families. Um, our number is 330-253-3100 or portagepath.org. Um, there is also a national helpline that's available, um, and that's 1-800-662-HELP. And then um, more specifically, um, for those who might have an increased risk of mental health symptoms that are associated um, as you had mentioned earlier in our conversation, we now have 988, which is the um, emergency number for mental health crisis. And you can text 988, and then there's like a 988lifeline.org chat um, that's available as well. 
And then for more specific information about Gamblers Anonymous and and sort of like all of the programs that are out there, whether online or in person, um, gamblersanonymous.org is a great resource. Um, and then there's actually very similar to Al-Anon for families and friends. Um, there's Gamanon, which is www.gam-anon.org. Okay, great. And I actually um, did a search on uh, gamblersanonymous.org right before we got on and just put our zip code in and there were several meetings, um, you know, in our area. Um, also, for, um, you know, this this podcast and this column may be, um, you know, used by some of our sister papers across the state, um, you know, what resources are there? Like, should people even, um, you know, can they start even with their primary care physician and get some referrals of some local agencies that, you know, or, or assistance that they might be able to get? Absolutely. Um, you know, most primary care doctors, they're used to talking with their um, patients about what their concerns are that are affecting their mental health, their, you know, all of that. So they're prepared with different resources and information as well. And, you know, if they don't know, they're going to point you in the right, in the direction of somebody who will know and make a referral. Sure. So. You started to talk about this earlier when you were talking about what help is available, but, you know, what other, what tips do you have for loved ones or family members um, you know, if they have the concern, as you were saying, you know, the, the person needs to be um, ready for the help. Um, but, you know, what, what tips do you have for for the loved ones that are as they're trying to to um, lovingly, you know, get that person the help? Yeah. So. um so I guess I'll start with when I am working with families and we're in that sort of stage of trying to get that person to really agree to begin that process of treatment. Um, there's a, another evidence-based practice that is widely used. And I think that it's um, incredibly helpful in having those conversations and it's called motivational interviewing. And really it's learning how to have conversations with anyone. And this is useful in parenting and, you know, romantic relation, anything um, motivational interviewing. I use it all the time. Um, and it's really about learning how to have a conversation with someone that it's a difficult conversation and you don't want it to turn into a wrestling match. You kind of want it to be a dance where you're coming alongside someone and you're, you're leaving the emotions of, you know, because unfortunately this causes a lot of stress for families. And so there can be a lot of anger that, and, and resentment and frustration that come into those conversations. And so the more that you can leave that aside, even though those emotions are, are real and they're significant and they should be acknowledged as part of the conversation about getting help. Um, it's much better to have that sort of coming alongside and remembering that the person has good qualities and that they are struggling with something that's part of, again, the human experience and to look at it in black and white terms can be detrimental and can create more um, detachment and, and distance. And what we really want to do is help that person to sort of identify, this is a part of my life. It's not me. I'm not a bad person. I've got caught up into something that I need to learn some tools and how to sort of reverse and, and providing that support and that love and that, um, 
understanding, I think, is important when you're helping anyone with um, a problem behavior. And, you know, then we go down the the line of, you know, what does it look like to be enabling someone as compared to supporting them and loving them? And what does it look like when we need to draw lines for ourselves and, and draw boundaries? Because, you know, for example, if someone that I am, you know, in a relationship with asks, you know, to take a credit line out in my name and, and they're, you know, now I'm, I'm in debt because of it or whatever. So we really like to guide families and friends as well on how to set limits and how to, you know, have that sort of tough love, um, in situations where it's necessary. Um, while we're talking about tips, what are some terms to avoid when it comes to talking about addiction? Um, you know, it's not necessarily, I guess, um, terms. I think it's always important when you're talking about someone who, um, is struggling with anything is, you know, we, our, our quick way of saying like, um, the term like gambling addict, for example, um, we want to steer away from identifying the person as, that addiction, right? So instead referring to them as a person who has a gambling addiction or a person who struggles with um, limits with gambling or problem gambling. So, you know, this helps that they're not like sort of congruent with it and it creates that space. And that space is what helps to begin that process of recovery that I am myself and this is a behavior and there's space between me and that, and I can observe it and I can make changes to it because if I'm identifying it as this is stuck on me, I have this problem forever and my brain is broken. That's really where we get kind of jammed up in some of that identifying thinking. Sure. Are there other things that we haven't covered that you want to make sure we, we talk about? Um, you know, in thinking about it further after talking with you, I think something that um, should be on our radar as we witness the legalization of sports gambling in Ohio um, is sort of this reported uh, sharp increase in youth gambling since 2018. Um, we know that the legal age is 18 to 21, but according to the National Council on Problem Gambling, um, I think the statistic is, uh, 60 to 80% of high school students, um, have gambled for money in the past year. And, uh, most of it is related to sports. So, you know, this increased access to online gambling, um, the impact of the pandemic, all of these factors are kind of, you know, related in here with, um, it becoming an increased risk for young adults and for youth. Um, I think the real issue too is, you know, as of now, and this is with anything, um, right now there's not a whole lot of federal money being spent on the education and intervention for youth. Um, I expect to see an increase in that because we're going to see an increase in the problems that are, that are going to come with it. So, um, I think that's really important where we can start now, um, sort of talking to children and to teens about, um, some of the risks and just educating on, you know, what, what that looks like and what the risks are. And then, you know, obviously coming up with good, uh, evidence-based, um, intervention and prevention programming. 
Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for for um, being with me today and offering a lot of uh, helpful information. Hopefully, it will be helpful to a lot of a lot of folks out there. Thanks so much. Thank you, Betty. Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.